Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling, produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. Thanks for tuning in to episode 24, our last of 2023. Our topic, post-traumatic stress disorder and hemophilia. We kick off the episode right after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. I would, uh, in a sense, PTSD, first of all, we are a traumatized species. Many people have experienced trauma. And I think the emphasis has always been external, the event that you have walked through or lived through, whether it's a diagnosis or a insult, let's say even a car wreck or a surgical experience. I think those things are important, but the real question we have to ask ourselves, how did we respond to the event? In a sense, give greater respect to the individual's nervous systems, because some people respond to events that do not reach the level that they would be considered traumatic, yet their body interpreted them as being traumatic. So in the case of bleeding disorder, the fact that when a parent gets that diagnosis of their child, the features that the parent is now expressing, broadcasting to that child, is going to potentially be a disruption into the child's previous ability to co-regulate with the parent. So what I'm saying is, it's not merely a medical disorder. It's a medical disorder that carries with it a great impact on the early interactional features of being parented and co-regulating with parents. And I would say that all parents need to go back in time. When I actually developed polyvagal theory, my children were basically young teenagers, and I had that same feeling. I missed the boat. I responded to their behaviors as if they were intentional and not really reflecting their physiological state. And after I had the theory, I became a more accessible father. I became a more accessible son. My father was still alive. And I would say reasonably more accessible husband. But that's the hardest of all. The impact that hemophilia has on a patient's mental health has become an area of increased attention, study, and sensitivity amongst clinical and patient advocacy leadership alike within the hemophilia community. However, one particular area of mental illness, specifically post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and its relationship to a life lived with hemophilia has emerged as an area in need of particular attention. There is one notable study looking at PTSD in adults with hemophilia A and B. Fortunately, its lead author, Amanda Stahl, is one of the contributors that make up our extraordinary panel of researchers, clinicians, and patients, all of whom join us to dig into the signs, symptoms, particularities, and data pertaining to hemophilia and PTSD. The panelists will now introduce themselves, starting with a voice familiar to the Global Hemophilia Report, Debbie De La Riva. Hi, everybody. I'm Debbie De La Riva. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm also a mother of a beautiful 
young man, age 29, and has severe hemophilia. And yeah, I'm just excited about being a part of this. Hi, I'm Amanda Stahl, and I am the social worker at the Boston Hemophilia Center, and I work with our adult patients there. I'm Stephen Porges. I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I am director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium in the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. Hi there, my name is Justin, and I am a visual artist up in Maine. I have hemophilia A with an inhibitor, severe, and I have experienced PTSD myself. So thanks for the opportunity to share. Let's start by making sure that we're all on the same page. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, whether someone is a researcher or a professional in healthcare or a patient or whatever, you've probably heard the word before, that acronym before, but Debbie, can you tell us what does PTSD actually mean? As a clinician, what I do is I just go back to the basics, and that is uh, something that's called a DSM-5. For those of you who don't know, the longer title is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And what that is, is the agreed upon diagnoses and signs and symptoms of the diagnosis. This is how it's uh, formally described. And so what it involves is PTSD is when somebody has experienced a traumatic event and when the traumatic event was a threat to themselves, threat to their safety. What is a traumatic event? It could be different for me than different for you, Patrick. It can also be something that you personally experience, like a bad ER visit, or it can be something vicarious that you actually witness, like a mass shooting or domestic violence. Let me go on to say a couple of things that do more about the actual diagnosis of PTSD that involves four different things that's really important to not only have you had the traumatic event, that there's four different symptoms that are involved with it. And one of them is intrusive thoughts. DSM-5 says you need to have one of the following. And that's your memories. That's your reminders. That it can come in the form of nightmares, for example. Those are all examples of intrusive thoughts. The other one is avoidance. And that is when you want to avoid anything that seems like the traumatic experience for you. Or you might want to avoid community events, or you might want to avoid infusions. The other one is you have reactivity and feelings of arousal. And what that is, it's like the person who's always on edge and has a startle response, has a real hard time concentrating. Just you're always scanning the room is another way of looking at it. Fourth thing is altercations in your thoughts and your moods. And that is like this, if you had a traumatic event, you might have decided that you are worthless or you might uh, change your worldview. The world's not a safe place because mom and dad can't take away my pain. Just to summarize, it's a traumatic event in those four different categories of symptoms. Intrusive thoughts, avoidance, reactivity, alterations in thoughts or mood, feelings of worthlessness. Okay, those are the five. Thank you for giving us that baseline. Debbie, as you describe what it is to witness a traumatic event and how that can lead to PTSD, I'm curious, as a caregiver to someone with hemophilia, do you feel in your life you experience traumatic events as a caregiver to someone with hemophilia? What I experienced is how I came into this journey. As a mother, when I came into 1994, it was just on the cuffs of the HIV and hep C scare in our products. And so I was in that middle of that. I wouldn't say I went on to develop PTSD, but that was definitely a traumatic experience, not knowing 
if this medication I'm giving to my son is a part of that generation or a part of the, you know, the more general. We will continue discussing PTSD and hemophilia right after this short break. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit the bigger picture in Heme B to learn about how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. Amanda, what compelled you to specifically study PTSD in hemophilia? I started working at our hemophilia center in 2015 and over time learned about the contaminated blood products from the 80s. And so I was in a trauma-informed care CEU, which is like a continuing education class at the Brigham and Women's Hospital where I work. And it was about trauma manifestations among survivors of intimate partner violence. And the CEU is about the experience of trauma for women. And as I sat there listening, I couldn't help but wonder how this all applied to my patients, specifically hemophilia patients who not only have faced such a traumatic history with contaminated blood products, but who are also mostly men. And I'm sitting there in the CEU, just like going over everything our patients have faced through their lives beyond just infectious disease from paralysis to inhibitor development to various complex medical situations and hospitalizations. And I thought there must be some research to better explain kind of the psychological consequences of these specific events. And I went back and looked at the research and there's a lot of research on depression prevalence and anxiety prevalence and quality of life for those with hemophilia, but it seemed like an incomplete set of data to evaluate the full psychological consequences of hemophilia. We know that PTSD, as Debbie mentioned, is associated with poor health outcomes, right? If you're avoiding your care because of whatever maybe trauma you experienced, you may not adhere properly to your care. As providers, it's really important for us to understand just how prevalent this is among our population. One follow-up to that, what are some of the key distinctions between PTSD and a clinical diagnosis of, say, major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety? Because it seems as though it can be difficult to sometimes know what's the diagnosis and what's the symptom of the diagnosis. So what are one or two clear distinctions between someone who has PTSD as opposed to someone who has, say, moderate depressive disorder? If you have PTSD, you have to experience a traumatic event. So that's really what this hinges on, is that the various four symptoms, intrusion, avoidance, negative cognition and mood, and arousal and reactivity symptoms are all based on whatever event you experience. So that's the main distinction between depression and PTSD. But also you have these like hyper arousal symptoms with depression is more characterized by low mood, sadness. It's a really a mood disorder, but PTSD, there's a lot of other symptoms involved. So I'd say that's like the main distinction. But it is, I would say it is absolutely in the anxiety disorder family. It's a stress disorder, right? So it 
is very closely related to anxiety. I want to hear more about how this study was designed. But before going down that road, Dr. Steve Porges, would you please speak a little bit to polyvagal theory? What is polyvagal theory and how does it apply to our community of people living with hemophilia? I wrote a book recently with my son, Seth, and he's a journalist and a filmmaker. And he basically says, if you want it in one sentence, it's really how we feel affects how we react and interpret the world. And from a polyvagal perspective, feelings are derivative of our bodily state. And if you have a bleeding disorder, your bodily state is already in some type of challenge mode. The world's different to me than if my body is regulated and serving and supporting my homeostatic or bodily functions, then I have the possibility. I basically have the neurophysiological platform to feel safe. So if we go into the world of individuals who have bleeding disorders, they're going to, many of them will be responding in a world that they feel great threat. And it's not just threat about, it says bleeding. So there will be more hypersensitivities to sounds, to detection, not to love novelty, want to have predictability because nervous systems like predictability. It's a metaphor for safety, but excitement and enthusiasm and discovery are all about, and even human humor is about uncertainty. But when you're in a state of threat, uncertainty is not your partner. I agree. Uncertainty can certainly be threatening. Justin, to bring you in, as you are listening to this conversation, as someone who has identified experiencing PTSD, what's coming up for you? It sounds very similar to what I've experienced in therapy recently, going through some testing that I had to do and which benchmarks am I hitting and qualifying for in terms of a diagnosis. And we've come to understand it in my experience with a therapist is I actually have what's called complex PTSD, which sort of as a result of recurring trauma or trauma over time. And so it's a little bit different than one instance of trauma. And I think that you can really see that popping up, I think, from folks who are experiencing a sort of a medicalized upbringing or childhood. What led to you and your therapist pinpointing PTSD specifically and even further complex PTSD? Do you remember? I had started to experience some panic symptoms, panic attacks, and different sort of somatic symptoms that I was having a hard time understanding why. And so as I was working through some of those feelings and those questions I was having with my therapist, I was giving myself an injection of Libra, and I just had this realization or this question, like, maybe this is PTSD. Like, maybe that's what this is. And so I brought it up as a question to my therapist, and we went through the diagnostic testing. And sure enough, I'm off the charts. There it was at the time. I think that says something about the importance of bringing our true experiences into therapy so that they can be unpacked and so that maybe just maybe we can learn something from them. I'm glad you shared that. Dr. Porges, can you explain the impact of chronic stress like we've been describing in terms of polyvagal theory? So the issue is we use terms like chronic stress, we use terms like anxiety, but what we end up doing with that is we tend to attribute the cause of it outside our body. But polyvagal theory says, basically, stop for a moment. If your body is not supporting its normal health growth and restoration modes, you're literally using the resources to be defensive. And that is a feature of virtually all chronic disorders. So you will see with chronic disorders, frequent symptoms of pain, hypersensitivity to the environment, difficulty in relationships. And the bottom line is not really feeling safe enough to trust others. But you also have a physiological state 
that is really now tilted towards being defensive, meaning you'll feel pain, you'll be hypervigilant, you'll be tentative about engagement, you won't take risks, or you shouldn't take risks. And basically, you'll be directed in your life journey to identify things that will make you feel better, which may end up being substances, pharmaceuticals from psychiatrists, alcohol, or other forms of drug, or even exercising. Basically, behaviors that keep your mind off your body. In a sense, support being numb and not going in and feeling what your body is telling you. Thank you for that insightful explanation. Amanda, I wanna come back to you and the study. How did you design the study? And what's notable to point out about the study design as well as ultimately its conclusions? Our study was conducted before the pandemic we started, and it lasted about a year and a half for all the data collection. So all adults with hemophilia A and B across three hemophilia treatment centers, the Boston Hemophilia Center, the Mount Sinai Hemophilia Center in New York City, and the M Health Fairview Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders, which is in Minneapolis, were eligible to participate. We sent all of our patients a survey if they were willing to participate via REDCap, which is an online survey tool. And the survey collected demographic and clinical information related to their disease. It also asked if the participant had ever experienced a traumatic event related to their hemophilia throughout their lifetime. And if yes, there was space to say when it occurred and to provide a brief narrative about the trauma. And if they had indicated that they had experienced, yes, a traumatic event, then they went on to take the PCL5, which is the standardized diagnostic tool for diagnosing PTSD. And it's a 20-question Likert survey. So we had 178 participants. We had 101 of them identify a trauma related to their hemophilia, more than half. 12% screened positive for PTSD which is three times higher than the rate experienced by the general population at any point in time. So we did a point in time study. How we did it was the PCL5 has a cutoff score that's indicated in the literature, which is 31. So that was the score that we used with that score, 12% screened positive for PTSD. We were also looking at trauma symptoms because each trauma symptom is really important for us as providers and patients too, to understand just the impact of each trauma symptom. So like the intrusion avoidance. So we were looking at all of these different symptoms and we found that about one third of patients screened positive for clinically significant trauma symptoms of PTSD. So it was about 35% of patients screened positive for at least one clinically significant trauma symptom. One third of the total experienced clinically significant trauma symptoms. We also looked at the qualitative data. Like I said, we asked our participants to provide brief narratives about the trauma that they had experienced. And that revealed some interesting things because we looked at duration of trauma that they identified and the timeline. So for most people who described a traumatic event, it began or occurred during childhood and for most of the participants who identified a traumatic event, multiple sources of trauma were represented. So we looked at the different trauma sources and we identified five main sources of trauma, which were non-infectious medical events, psychosocial, pain, hepatitis, and then HIV and AIDS. And so most of the people who identified trauma said it started in childhood, multiple sources were represented, 
And most people said that it was recurring in nature. It wasn't just a one-time event. It was multiple bleeds. It was surgeries followed by bleeding events, followed by a long series of medical complications. Finally, we also had looked at the associations between the various clinical and demographic information that we collected. The odds of PTSD were higher in patients who had more health and mental health comorbidities. So health comorbidities, infectious and non-infectious, were associated with higher odds of PTSD development. An older age and higher education were actually protective against PTSD development. So age 46 plus and those who had higher education were less likely to experience PTSD. Debbie, it looks like you had a comment there. Yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about these individuals are more four times as likely to develop PTSD, people in our community with hemophilia. I really want to deep dive a little bit more about that. And also to put some different points of reference to support Amanda's study and the results. Look at this, 47% of those that were indicative that they had PTSD said it had to do with psychosocial experiences. And then we also know just from lived experience that loneliness was involved. But the loneliness, I wanted to tell you that poor childhood experiences or adversity in childhood, just to speak to you, Justin, that does have a cumulative effect. And we have proof by that with this huge study called the Adverse Childhood Experience, that the more adverse effects that you had in childhood, the more likely, like Amanda just said, you're going to develop anxiety or depression and poor health outcomes. I'm glad you did. We will continue the discussion right after this short break. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit the bigger picture in Heme B to learn about how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing the study that Amanda led in PTSD and hemophilia. So my next question, Amanda, is for you. What kind of feedback have you gotten or responses have you gotten from professionals, people like Debbie, from patients, people like Justin, myself, advocacy leaders, other clinicians, researchers in bleeding disorders, just in general, what's the feedback been? The most common questions I've been getting is like, how do we treat this and what do we do next? Especially because a lot of this trauma takes place during childhood. So I think pediatric providers are like, okay, how do we treat it? Like, what's the next step in terms of research in childhood trauma development? And that I think is a much more complicated question. One, because of the nature of PTSD development, a lot of times when you experience a traumatic event, it's not always right away that you experience the symptoms of the trauma, right? It can be years before you really understand the weight of what you went through or the experience that you suffered from or whatever it was. So I don't know that looking at pediatric patients being like, okay, are you experiencing trauma right now? Like we have to intervene. Like I'm not sure that's the right response. I do think there's a lot of opportunity for prevention 
both from the medical community, right? Like we can do better. This study, I hope, is intended for medical providers to look at and be like, oh, wow, we can treat our patients in a better way with trauma-informed care practices. And also, I have no real recommendations for parents, but I do think there might be some flexibility there in terms of how we're parenting kids with a chronic illness. Let's delve a little deeper into this idea of flexibility and parenting. Steve, what does parenting kids with chronic illnesses do to a parent? Okay, let's start with that because the parents are also suffering, let's say, type of PTSD, if we can use that. It is a trauma to a parent. And if we go into really the feelings that the parent has, I think you'll get a lot of hints to the answer to your question. That is a sense of responsibility, a sense of guilt, and it may be overwhelming for some parents. I'd like to take another strategy. So I'd like to say, what can I do or what can we do to optimize the experience of any human being? So it's a strategy, it's an optimistic strategy. We're all born with different attributes, different limitations. But what is our true responsibility as parents? Our true responsibility is to enable our children to be who they are, to optimize who they are. And I've reframed that statement over the years. And now I use this kind of statement saying, who are we when we are safe enough to be who we are? So visualizing that way, who are our children when they feel safe enough to be who they are? And remember, everything in our culture is evaluative, including medicine and education. Evaluation is threat. So just understand that all our nervous systems are under threat, including the parents and the child. And if the child is in school, think of the environment that the child is in being evaluated and also being marginalized while being evaluated. In a sense, if being treated if they're different is a marginalization, and this makes people feel less connected, less it's disruptive in this ability to develop trusting relationships. Yeah, safety is the key, which brings us back to trauma-informed care. Steve, we talked about trauma-informed care a bit earlier, but I wonder if you could take the discussion just a bit further. I use the term polyvagal informed, and what that really means is that the therapist is skilled in literally reading the physiological state of the client, of the patient. And we can see that in terms of facial expressivity, especially the upper part of the face. Is the face flat without having emotional affect, or does it look exuberant? There's a reason when people look exuberant, there's a neuroregulation of the upper part of the face. And that comes from an area of the brainstem that is also involved with calming our body through the vagus going to the heart. So people are literally broadcasting their physiological state in that facial expressivity, but also in the intonation of their voices. So it means that if your voice is more melodic and the word is used prosodic, meaning with emotion, but usually meaning positive emotion, like a mother talks to a baby to calm the baby, or you talk to your pet to calm the pet. You use a melodic voice. And that's because our nervous systems evolved with literally detectors of those modulations. So we hear the modulations and now we're calmer. Now, what a client or a patient in a center would be responding to if a therapist or a professional in that center was, let's say, polyvagal informed, they would be listening to the melodic aspects of the therapist's voice, the professional's voice. And if it was more, in a sense, monotone and barking at you, you, your body would go like this. 
But if it were more inviting or welcoming, you feel comfortable and you give up that hypervigilance, that defensiveness to protect your body. When we talk about trauma-informed, we're really saying, are you aware of your patient's nervous system? Are you aware that you can pick up the cues? You don't have to put electrodes on. You can listen to the voice. You can look at the muscle tension in the person. And you can listen to the intonation of the voice. There are two parts. One is detecting another. And the other one is really broadcasting yourself. So therapists have to really understand that they broadcast their physiological state to the patient. And if they're broadcasting their own, let's say, having a bad day, overwhelmed, burnout, they're not going to have compliant patients. Amanda, earlier you made a comment, we can do better. I'm inclined to agree, but I don't actually know what better looks like. What does better polyvagal informed or trauma informed care look like? And how do we prevent trauma from occurring in pediatric patients? I don't know if we can prevent all of it from occurring. I wonder too if advances in bleeding disorder therapies will help mitigate some of these consequences of medical events. So that could decrease over time, I'm hoping. But physicians, I think, and providers of all kinds can implement trauma-informed care practices. So what that means is just enhanced shared mutual decision-making providing adequate education to our patients so that they are partners with us to make their medical decisions. It's promoting a culture of safety within our medical system, asking permission before we do anything with our patients, giving choices when you can, introducing yourself properly and making eye contact with patients, considering the environment of our clinic spaces. Where you're sitting can make a big impact with how your patients are incorporating mental health providers or social workers. I don't want to toot my own horn, but <laughs> having mental health providers in clinic spaces can help patients kind of process what they're going through in the moment. Inviting patient questions is another thing, creating clear expectations for patients. So these are all things I think that we can do as providers to promote a more safe space in our clinics. It's eye contact, it's where you sit, it's asking questions and not making any assumptions. We're not talking about just social workers, we're talking about the nurse coordinator, we're talking about whoever is sitting at the front desk when a patient walks in. We're talking about the student at the teaching hospital that your HTC is a part of coming in and behaving in appropriate ways. Yeah, just to add on to what Amanda said, trauma-informed care isn't necessarily about prevention. It's about identification and education moving forward. It's about letting medical providers understand that trauma is real, and this is what we know about how it impacts their physical and emotional health. So that's part of it, and I can't wait to ask. So it sounds like, on one hand, the specifics that Amanda laid out give me hope. We can tangibly apply better practices based on this data. And yet, on the other hand, it sounds so holistic what we need to do that a little fear comes up for me. Who's leading this? Who's doing it? It makes sense, but who is doing the work? Look, I'm a mom of a 29-year-old with severe hemophilia. My HTC is something very precious to me. And when something's precious with you, what I'd like to say is that even though we're really lucky to have our comprehensive care, I'm not sure if the comprehensive care has caught up with the times. And so that's what I want to see trauma-informed care to to know what the questions to ask for. Justin, about what would have been helpful for you at the treatment center to identify the trauma that you experienced and the implications that 
had for you. As a child, I don't think sometimes you understand what your own needs are necessarily, but I, what my experience is that we were basically putting out fires. And so I think there wasn't a whole lot of time to take a second and process what was actually going on because the extreme consequences were dire. You know, it was very black and white. Are you bleeding? Are you not? And once I wasn't bleeding anymore, it was like, okay, let's like get back on the horse and get back to school. So I think it really was, there wasn't really much time to breathe and process it. And that's from a home perspective, as well as I think an HTC perspective. And so I think the HTC could have been better about actually maybe training my parents about what the sort of trauma in my body like would end up leading to or how to deal with maybe the emotional outcomes or effects of that. As Justin shares that, Amanda, I wonder, are there any anecdotes that you're aware of or experiences you've had or witnessed, best practices for how a healthcare provider can help educate a parent on unintended trauma or otherwise unintended harm on their child? So again, I'm not a parenting expert. I want to lead with that (laughs) very clearly um, because I know that- We will not edit that. Please don't edit that out because I know that parents are doing their best. They have been handed a really challenging situation and it is stressful. And I 100% understand that. I also don't work with parents all the time. I mostly work with adults who have bleeding disorders themselves. I do think there is space to teach parents just about distress tolerance. It's an important job for any parent, but especially a kid who's going to go through a lot of distress in their lives. And that just means allowing kids to feel their feelings. And you can model this as a parent. When you're overwhelmed, you can just say, I'm overwhelmed. You know, if you're yelling at your kid, you can just say, I'm really overwhelmed right now. I need to step away. And that's an important way to model just allowing it's okay to feel feelings. You're not going to suppress these emotions. And if you do suppress them, they'll bubble up later in a different way. Someone said once, I think it was anger is sadness with nowhere to go. And that really resonated with me because we have a lot of people who come in as adults and their spouses come in with them saying so-and-so is really angry and they get angry all the time. And I wonder if that's because maybe as a child, they weren't allowed to express their emotions or feel their full scope of sadness or whatever it was. So yeah, that's my one, I guess, parenting tip, but take it or leave it. It is time again for one last quick break. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. Dr. Steve Porges, could you speak to the social component of PTSD and how PTSD impacts our social connections and vice versa? You can't separate the social component from our own physiology. You can't separate sociality from our neurobiological or genetic quest to feel safe in the arms of others. So in a sense, we're on a journey to connect with others. And in connecting with others, we give up our vigilance and we allow the other. I'm not sure if you can see it, is my 17-pound cat which I have a spouse and two children, but their children are gone, but now I have a cat. And the issue is you need another mammal that really likes to be around you and just will give you a hug every once in a while. So the 
issue is our neurobiology is a neurobiology not of self-regulation, which is really how we're taught. It's really a neurobiology that evolved through co-regulation. And it's through that co-regulation that we have, let's say, the strength and literally the memories that enable us to co-regulate. We self-regulate with the memories of our past co-regulation. So the issue is if our bodies are due to a medical disorder, disrupted and into the state of threat, that state of threat is not part of the disease. The inability to feel safe in one's body, to have chronic pain, to be in hyperstates of hypervigilance, they are manageable through sociality. So the interesting part of this is really polyvagal theory is that sociality, our ability to co-regulate, have friends and interact is very much a neuromodulator. It's a vagal nerve stimulator is a neuromodulator that calms our body down. So we need sociality and social nourishment to downregulate those threat or defense behaviors. And in a sense, as a way of dealing with chronic pain, if the symptoms associated with bleeding disorders lead to chronic pain. Thank you for that explanation. I wanna switch gears now and spend a little time on inhibitors because having that inhibitor and all the more bleeding episodes, all this, the more disruption to your life, your family's life, your partner's life, the inability to know that you'll be able to show up to work and how that could then impact the money that you have to pay for things like health insurance premiums and so on and so forth. Amanda, in this study or in any of your work in general, do you have insights or thoughts related to PTSD, hemophilia, and inhibitors? That came up among our trauma descriptions, inhibitor development was certainly something that came up for people, but not enough that we separated it. We had one kind of blanket, non-infectious medical events. Maybe we could look back in our data and see how many of those were related to inhibitor development or inhibitors. I mean, I would be very curious to know. I don't have any specific information as it relates to PTSD, but could be a good follow-up study. I feel as though having an inhibitor just increases and keeps alive this stress response, this trauma response, this anxiousness. It's almost like inflammation, an inflammation cycle that just keeps self-perpetuating. That's my experience anyway, but what's your experience, Justin? Really, you've hit it on the head. And what's funny is, is that I think as I'm getting older, those questions become even more prominent. What is a future what does the future look like for me? What is the future bleed when I'm 60 or 70? Or when's the bleed going to kill me? And those sort of real fears, I think, in terms of what does longevity with me and my disorder look like? And I think inhibitors just amp that up times 100 because, yes, we know Libra is very effective in this time, but we don't really know like what happens if you have catastrophic events or huge surgical interventions that need to happen or something. So I think... A lot of those sort of question marks and a lot of those events occur as one does get older. And of course, I think they're informed by your previous traumas. So I think that you there is just always a reconciliation or a sort of Venn diagram of what to worry about in the future based on what you know in the past. Yeah, there is an interrelation there for sure. Debbie, it looked like you had a comment. Yeah, you know, we're talking about inhibitors and how that affects your psyche and whether you're able to navigate other traumatic events. And I'm just going to zoom out for a little bit. What we know about if someone has a trauma and whether they go on to develop full-blown PTSD has a lot to do with, with two things. One of them is the amount of agency 
that you have at the moment to impact change, in this case, not bleeding. We know that from sexual survivors, sexual assault survivors, that the amount of agency that they had over getting it to stop, even if there's a physical restraints involved, those are the individuals that usually have a harder time not developing PTSD. The other one, second mostly important, is, is a supportive environment. You've heard the statement, it only takes one person to see your pain and be that person for you. But it, it's really true. We isolated, it was the people with inhibitors, without inhibitors, the fear of hep C, the fear of admitting it to yourself. All of that stuff happened, which created a very isolated experience. I, I really concur with, I'm so glad, Amanda, you did, you and your colleagues did this study because the struggle's real and the more we know about it, the more we know how to treat it. And what is the next step, Amanda, to that point? Or it, what are some of the ways that we can add to the total data set and information that we have on PTSD and hemophilia? I'm not sure. I would be curious from this study. We didn't really look at pain. I think that was one of our limitations of this study is that we just categorize like a People might have said, my bleeding episodes, which were probably painful, but unless they said pain, then it wasn't categorized. So I do think that probably we missed a lot of the connection between pain and PTSD, because when you're experiencing pain, oftentimes it is also a memory of whatever happened or a memory of your vulnerability as someone with a bleeding disorder. So I wonder if that could be explored further, maybe in a qualitative study, I'm not sure. I'm also interested in family systems, like how does a family all deal with somebody who has a bleeding disorder in their family? Like how much do your parents influence your development of PTSD? I'm curious about that. I think this could be applied to other bleeding disorders. I know there was just a big research study in vulnerable brain disease and depression and anxiety, but I don't think that they included trauma, but I would be curious to know more about that. Were there quality of life specific questions or data that was gleaned from the study? No, we didn't ask about quality of life. We just asked demographics, clinical information, and then about trauma. So it feels like we're identifying a few areas of continued research to help further our understanding about PTSD and hemophilia. So that's encouraging. Debbie, as we are on the brink of wrapping up, I want to ask you first, what do you think hemophilia treatment centers could start doing immediately to increase the understanding about the prevalence and nature of PTSD in our community. Yeah, completely. So in fact, this is a repeat of the weekend at an advisory board for a pharmaceutical on mental health and pain. And we spent a day talking about this and then we went around the room. Okay, so what's one takeaway you have? Great, thanks for doing all that work that we can benefit from. Yeah, yeah big time. And number one, it's just, we have the idea of comprehensive care. We just need to take it a little bit farther and that is whole person oriented healthcare. And so really what I'm saying is just if our HTCs would, in a more standardized way, just make sure that we all have the same information on the emotional impact of living with, a, with hemophilia, that's the first part, the education. Secondly, the trauma-informed care, understanding about that and having this mindset that you're looking for it and it's allowed. The third thing that we identified is that many times, sometimes, maybe a social worker won't pick up on things or doesn't have the time because of our systemic health care to delve into it once they identify anything. So that leads to the third thing. We have got to figure out how, instead of talking to ourselves all the time, we've got to figure out how our HTCs can better access mental health professionals. And there's some really good ideas about that. 
how we can improve that. Tremendous and specific ideas, Debbie. Thank you for that. Steve, what's your take on the current state of PTSD-related research? Well, I'm a real researcher, so when I put that hat on, my vocabulary changes and also my acceptance or welcoming to people change. I become really a very critical person. And I usually don't invite people to ask those types of questions because they might not like the person who steps up. In general, I don't like the research in the area because they treat the diagnosis as if it's a real entity and not really a cluster of external symptoms that may or may not have an underlying core physiological feature. So if we step back from PTSD and say, and we step back from the word anxiety, we step back from the word stress, and we say, what could we truly operationalize in a research paradigm? We would say there's a disruption in the homeostatic functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So in a sense, the body has moved from supporting health growth and restoration to allocating its resources for defense. So I would actually simplify these complex terminologies. And I would also say that we use words that are psychological constructs and they start getting really complex with all kinds of features. And if we think of the brain as literally being this triangle, inverted triangle, and at the pit or apex of the triangle is really the brainstem. It's a small unit. And that deals with our foundational survival systems. And when they get triggered into threat, it changes everything above it in the brain. And it means that we have these physiological feelings that are now being basically reshaping everything above it. And we're creative, generative nervous systems. So we'll make a good story. So you start finding out that in mental health, virtually every diagnosis has overlapping core features when it comes to the autonomic or physiological features. Virtually all of them have a body that's in a state of threat. So the issue is, would we be better as researchers trying to understand how to turn on and off threat systems versus going on into these elaborate and giving labels and then with labels come really a sense of affinity with the diagnosis. And so people don't want to give up the diagnosis because the diagnosis in their mind explains them and literally enables them to manage in this complex world. I think we do have onboard toolkits to turn off threat reactions. And I think it's really been taught by the effective mothers of the world who calm down their crying babies. And I would say perhaps a few effective fathers, but in general, mothers are better at this. And And even men who deal with their pets, they understand that vocalizations and gestures and how we present ourselves to our pet or our child calms them down. And that if we try to demand using language, like you should have, you have to, it doesn't work. It just gets the body into a greater state of threat and makes them literally amnesic and analgesic. They're not even hearing what's going on because the body's in such a chronic state of threat. But our society still believes that threat will manipulate the body and rewards will manipulate as well. And what we have to understand is that we evolve with some remarkable onboard toolkits to be calm. One of them is the prosodic voice of a trusted other. Justin, for you, what's on your mind when you think about what we could be doing in the treatment centers or next steps with research? What's coming up for you? I think HCCs have a very important purpose from for parents, I think, and young children, for sure. I think right now my perspective is that the older I get, the less 
I'm getting the care that I need from the model. You know, I think more and more I'm beginning to question, is this actually comprehensive? Very recently, I, and so I guess, actually, let me just back up because I think because I'm not necessarily having as many bleeds, I'm wanting to deal with other issues like my ankle or my elbow and the chronic issues I'm having there. And I'm trying to get hooked up with the right doctor for that. And I've been told very specifically, we have no one for you to go to. It seems very peculiar to me. That's not part of the model, right? And so to be left hanging there, I think actually exacerbates some of these symptoms that I was having. It's, oh, I thought the net was there and there is no net. What am I supposed to do? And so I've actually had to go out there and find the providers myself that I need. It just feels like another failure of the system. That's a whole topic unto itself that I'm I'm really glad you brought up here because I think it's key. And as an adult with hemophilia, I relate and agree with almost everything you said. Amanda, anything that hasn't been said or that you want to comment on as it relates to how we help treatment centers be aware of and understand the prevalence and nature of PTSD and hemophilia? I think education is really important just on what PTSD is. Historically, it has been a disease or illness associated with veterans and war combat or a single event in the past, like a car accident, and then it's over. But PTSD is actually can be much more complicated and can impact people who have a chronic illness. And providers should recognize that when a patient maybe doesn't come to a clinic visit or is a last minute no-show, um, it might be because interfacing with the medical system has been traumatic for them in the past, right? And I think maybe people aren't aware of that. It's frustrating for providers when someone just continuously doesn't show up or, oh my goodness, they're not taking their medication and what are we going to do about this? But I think if we have an awareness of maybe where that's coming from, then at least we have a place to start from. I think secondly, social workers specifically have really unique roles in an HTC. We see everyone You don't want to see us half the time, probably, or maybe you do, but we see you no matter what. Like, you have to come to see us. So it's this delicate line when patients first come to us, if we ask them too deeply, tell us about your trauma, we might not be building rapport with them. So we have to be careful about how we approach our patients to make sure that they trust us and they feel like they want to explore this more and we're a safe place for them to come. But then years pass and we don't ask about trauma and then we do and they say, how did you not know about this? You were there when I you know, had my complex medical situation in the hospital. So I think that implementing screening tools can be a really useful way to work around this because then the patient just has a tool. We don't have to ask and they can write it down if they want to and we can talk about the tool. We don't have to talk about the trauma. So I do think implementing screening tools is one way that providers can help mitigate this a little bit. I like the way you framed the use of screening tools. We can talk about the tool. We don't have to talk about the trauma. I think that's a really useful icebreaker for folks. Makes a lot of sense. So mindset and resources are two things coming out of this portion of the conversation that I think treatment centers would benefit from. Uh, Any final comments from anyone as we begin to wrap? Amanda, that really helped me uh, gain some insight, too, on the patient perspective and how they're presenting obstacles, perhaps, for you to get into our hearts and get into our minds. Because there could be this implication that we feel that, that, oh, that's not their role. Their role is to do insurance and our basic needs. Or it could be a role of not wanting to disappoint you. 
because of you guys have taken such good care of me and we get factor in people in India. My son's perspective, what, and maybe Justin, if we have more time, what are you guys going to do to me or with me if I let you know I'm depressed and feeling hopeless and helpless or just anxious? Justin, anything that you want to add? I guess that it's going to be a given that this trauma is recurring. Complex PTSD is not yet actually in the DSM-5, just the PTSD component of it. But maybe the hemophilia community itself is a really great space to be looking at that specific complexity. And the HTCs might find themselves in the perfect position to study that. And I just think really amping up the social work components that sort of help to get you from one step to the next are going to be super critical at this particular moment in time specifically because now that we're not bleeding as much maybe the emotions are really coming to the surface all around well said really well said all right i appreciate you all coming into this episode to discuss ptsd and hemophilia I'm inspired what you just said, Justin, and and maybe this work that people like Amanda and Debbie are doing, the kind of leadership that Steve Porges is putting forward. Maybe this will all help us learn more about this idea of complex PTSD and recurring traumas and how all of that relates, intersects with someone who has a chronic disease or a rare disease over time. And maybe this is yet another way that work in hemophilia can set a standard that many other populations can benefit from. So let's end on that optimistic note. Thank you, Amanda Stahl, Justin Levesque, Dr. Steve Porges, contributor and advisor, Debbie De La Riva, and senior medical advisor for the Global Hemophilia Report, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. As we end this last episode of the year, I want to give a special thank you to all of you tuning in every month. Thank you. We couldn't do this show without you, and we do this show for you. And if you've missed any of our episodes this year or last year, search for Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen to podcasts. All previous episodes can also be streamed directly from the Global Hemophilia Report's website, globalhemophiliareport.com. Please share the Global Hemophilia Report with friends, colleagues, or family members who you think would benefit from listening to it. Lastly, the Global Hemophilia Report is proud to announce that we have been renewed for a third season, meaning we will be back in January with another important episode. Thank you to Sanofi, our featured advisor, for making this episode and this show possible. Thank you, Sanofi, for your global commitment to the hemophilia community. Thank you, producer Keith Corneluk, and all who work behind the scenes to bring this show to life all year long. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time.